You are now listening to the Fat Fix Podcast with David Flowers, a show talking about all things fat loss and health for the general population. Helping people understand why they are in the position they're in right now, rather than just focusing on what they need to do. Your no-nonsense personal trainer friend that you can have access to in your pocket whenever you need some help, guidance or just to kick up the arse. Hello and welcome to the Fat Fix podcast for episode number 21. This week I was joined by Stefan Guillenet, who holds a PhD in neuroscience, who then went on to study in particular the neuroscience of obesity and eating behaviour. In this episode we spoke about the neuroscience of overeating and how the brain regulates body fatness. He also spoke in detail how our brain circuits work within us and from an evolutionary standpoint, how they're still driving certain behaviours from a caloric balance standpoint. This all made for a very good discussion with Stefan and one which I'm sure you will all find very, very interesting. So without further ado, this is episode 21, The Hungry Brain featuring Stefan Guillenet. Hi, Stefan. Hi, good to be here. Thank you very much for coming on to the Fat Fix podcast, first and foremost. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for inviting me, David. Just before we get started, Stefan, uh, for any people who are not familiar with your work, um, I do get a lot of, obviously, general population who do listen to my podcast, so I don't think many many guys will have kind of know who you are. Potentially, I know a lot of people in the fitness space like myself do, but if you'll give a little introduction into who you are and what you do, that'd be fantastic. Absolutely. So my background is in neuroscience and particularly the neuroscience of eating behavior and body fat regulation. So my educational background is in biochemistry and neuroscience and obesity research. Um, I did my work primarily at the University of Washington, my PhD work and my postdoc work studying uh, body fat regulation by the brain. And I've always been interested in fitness, uh, health and nutrition, just on a personal level. And um, going into obesity research was a way for me to take my interest in neuroscience, my professional interest in neuroscience, and fusing that with my personal interest in health and nutrition and fitness. And it's hard to imagine a better intersection of those two things than obesity research. Um, And this is kind of relates to why I end up writing my book because I think a lot of people don't realize how much of an intersection there is between brain activity and eating behavior and body fat regulation. Essentially, you know, and I think it's pretty intuitive if you think about it, all of our behaviors are generated by the brain. Every time that you move a muscle, that is coming from your brain. Eating behavior is a behavior and is therefore generated by your brain. So every time that you sit down and decide what to eat, decide how much to eat, all of those things are coming from brain activity. So it's a pretty obvious target for understanding why we sometimes eat foods that we don't really want to, or why we sometimes eat more than we want to, um, in terms of our kind of high level positive goals for ourselves. And so I started learning about this information in my field and figured out that there's actually a ton of information about it. We actually know quite a bit about it. Not to say that we know everything, but we know quite a bit about it. And I also realized that 
the public really wasn't getting this information. And there was in this information vacuum that the public wasn't getting, there was a kind of proliferation of low quality information on what was, what was going on. And so that led me to write my book, The Hungry Brain, which is all about the neuroscience of overeating really is the central thing um, and body fatness. And so it's a general audience book. So it's intended to be readable by pretty much anyone from folks who don't have a scientific background and are just interested in the topic all the way to researchers. I wrote it in such a way that it's hopefully informative even to knowledgeable people. So that was, that's kind of the, the line I was trying to walk with my book. Um, and yeah, and that brings me to this day. Um, I published that book a couple of years ago and I'm just continuing with my science uh, communication efforts. My latest project is Red Pen Reviews, which is an expert health and nutrition book review website where we're basically we reinvented health and nutrition book reviews. We created a semi-quantitative structured expert book review method to give more user-friendly, more informative and unbiased and consistent book reviews than anything that's currently in existence. So that's redpenreviews.org. That's my latest project. I think it's really interesting with obviously with what you put in your book there, Stefan, is because a, a lot of people do tend to ask them questions is like, why am I overeating? Why do I keep reaching for this certain food? And the questions that a lot of people they don't really get well they don't really get any good answers back from it uh, personally it'll just be a case of or oh, willpower or motivation or you don't want it enough so i think it's really valuable to kind of to the listeners today to actually drive on that information what with what you relay in your book to why this actually occurs and why the people have these and what drives this kind of disconnect between the brain and our intentions as such because we've all got good intentions right we all want to we all want to look a certain way we all want to live a healthier lifestyle but what is it in terms of the brain that does drive this disconnect to make us do some of the wrong things yeah absolutely so this is a really interesting very simple really interesting observation to me that we in our everyday lives are constantly doing things that we don't really want to do in the bigger picture sense. Like who wants to eat more calories than they need to be lean and accumulate body fat, you know, one pound here, one pound there, then 10 pounds, then 20 pounds, then 30 pounds. And that's the typical trajectory for people in the US, UK, and pretty much all other affluent nations, nearly all other affluent nations. So nobody wants to do this. Nobody wants to gain fat. Nobody wants to become sick from eating too much and having excess fat. And yet that is literally what the majority of us do on a daily basis and throughout our lives. And so this has some kind of startling implications. And one of them is that we have different brain functions that are essentially at odds with one another. So there are brain functions that are telling us, hey, we should eat healthy food and we should eat the right amount for these long-term positive goals that we have for ourselves. And then there are other brain regions that are saying, no, let's eat tons of this pizza, let's drink this soda, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And unfortunately, all too often, those, the second category of brain functions wins. 
But um, this is kind of how the brain is organized. We have different modules essentially that are doing different things and that are competing for our behavior in different ways. And the output is kind of the balance of all of those different things in our brains interacting with one another. And a lot of the things that are happening in our brain, a lot of those modules are non-conscious or minimally conscious. In other words, they're doing things that we have no conscious awareness of. All we are aware of is the high-level outputs. And so, for example, you know, there, just to give you some really concrete examples, some clear examples, there are brain regions that regulate your heart rate. There are brain regions that regulate your breathing rate while you're sleeping. There are brain regions that are regulating your digestion and all kinds of other physiological functions that we have zero conscious awareness of and zero control over. So there's tons of stuff happening in your brain that we don't have access to, don't have direct access to, I should say. And a lot of these things have to do with our eating behavior. So for example, where does hunger come from? Do you choose to feel hungry or is that just something that arises and that you become aware of as a result of non-conscious brain activity? Of course, it's the latter. No one says, no one sits down and says, okay, I want to be hungry now and then starts feeling hungry. Same with cravings. No one chooses to have a craving. You don't say, hey, I, today I feel like craving chocolate, so I'm going to start craving chocolate. No. You can say, today I'll eat chocolate or I won't eat chocolate, but you can't control your, your state of craving. That is something that arises from the activity of non-conscious brain regions that we have little awareness over and little control over, little direct control over. Again, you can control your behavior, but you can't control the impulses that often shape your behavior. So, um, yeah, and so you have this competition basically that's happening between these non-conscious brain regions. And what, what's the deal? Why do these brain regions exist and why do they do what they do? Basically, they evolved to support our uh, reproductive success of our distant ancestors. So everything that we are as humans, or I should say most of what we are as humans, are adaptations that evolved over tens of millions of years to help our distant ancestors survive and thrive in their environment. And so we have brain regions that guide us and motivate us toward foods that are more calorie dense and have certain properties that would have been good for our distant ancestors in terms of their survival and reproductive success. We have certain impulses around physical activity that tell us to conserve energy because if you're a hunter-gatherer, going for a jog is like the dumbest thing you could possibly do because you're already expending so many calories and you're already having to work so hard to get the food to meet your calorie needs. Why would you unnecessarily burn calories? That's, that's like the dumbest thing you could do. So we have these instincts that are stamped into our brains on a non-conscious level that were just were that just were away in the background of our brains and guide our behavior in a way that would have been really good for our ancestors and that was good for our ancestors 10,000 years ago or even a few hundred years ago when food was scarce and required was more scarce I should say required more effort and time to to prepare and energy demands were higher for the body so basically 
the over the big picture here, and this is the thesis of my book, is that we have all of these non-conscious systems that are set up to guide our eating behavior in the right direction a thousand or ten thousand years ago, but those are colliding with a very different food environment than the one in which our ancestors lived. So today our food environment is totally different, but these systems are still doing what they're designed to do. They're still pushing us toward the calorie dense foods, rich in carbohydrate and fat and, uh, and protein and salt. And they are still pushing us to not do unnecessary physical activity. You know, think about, think about your motivational state when you're in front of a pizza, like a delicious pizza, you're sitting there you're smelling it, you're looking at it. You have to use willpower to stop yourself from eating that pizza. Your intrinsic motivation is to eat that pizza. And if you don't want to, most people will have to exert willpower to stop yourself. Now think about physical activity. Most people will have to use willpower to do, to go for a jog, to go lift weights. They don't have to use willpower. You, you wouldn't have to use willpower to stop yourself from going for a jog. So the motivational, the intrinsic motivations are reversed for things that put calories into your body and things that take calories out of your body. These are very deeply wired basic adaptations. So anyway, that's a long-winded way of just saying that we have these adaptations that are deeply stamped into our brains that helped our ancestors survive, but some of those things are no good for us anymore in the modern world, but we're still struggling against those things. So those brain activities, those non-conscious brain activities, they're doing exactly what they were designed to do. They're supposed to make you want pizza. They're supposed to make you want ice cream, and they're supposed to make you sit on the couch. That's what they were designed to do. And so they drive your intrinsic motivations, your impulses in those directions. And if you want to overcome that, you have to spend your limited reserve of, of uh, willpower, you know? And so basically, this is one of the cool things, one of the cool pieces of feedback that I've received from my book, which was kind of unexpected, is people said, oh, wow, well, now that I understand what these brain regions are and how they work and that they're just doing what they're supposed to do, I understand now that it's not really a conscious, it's not a, really a failing on my part that, you know, these brain regions are doing exactly what you would expect them to do in the environment that they're currently in. So I, it helps people have more compassion for themselves to understand that they have these little, you know, functions in their brains that are doing what they're supposed to do, but they're undermining those things are undermining them every day by creating the hunger and the willpower, or excuse me, the hunger and the cravings and, you know, making it harder to do physical activity, et cetera. So I think that's one cool thing is it helps people, once you start to understand yourself and what's going on in your brain, it helps you have compassion for what's happening and stop feeling like you're a failure for having cravings or you're a failure for not wanting to get off the couch. You're 100% totally normal and functional for having those impulses, but they are nevertheless unfortunate. That's no, that's a really good point, Stefan. What you kind of broke down then at the end, especially kind of linking that all together, because a lot of people do have those feelings of like, 
self-sabotage when they have like you said eating a pizza and it's the reaction to that when when you're actually breaking it down like that and talking about the brain and how we are kind of hardwired to kind of preserve as much energy as possible and eat as much food as possible because back like evolutionary many many years ago we didn't know when the next meal was going to come and like you say it would have been stupid back in the day to just go for a run and expend energy because at the end of the day that's that's what you was looking for back then you was looking for these calorie dense foods for survival but the only problem is now you've got that processes that in the brain like you said that can evolutionary date back hundreds and hundreds of years and now you've got the exposure of highly palatable foods literally one minute away from us every time we want to grab a pizza or a little bit of chocolate we have the access to just do that as we didn't have that access many years ago right yeah absolutely and essentially these non-conscious brain regions they respond to the cues that you give them and those cues are coming from both internal cues from your physiology, your hormones, et cetera, inside your body and from your surroundings. And so, for example, just to give you a concrete example, if you smell the smell of brownies coming out of the oven or cookies or whatever the food is that you enjoy, that immediately will trigger a dopamine response. That is a cue in your environment that will trigger a dopamine response in your brain that will stimulate your motivational drive to eat that food. So it's these brain regions are very responsive to the cues that they're receiving. And so the cues that we have today are very different. You know, we have these very calorie dense foods and the sensory cues associated with them, the smells and the sights, et cetera, all around us. We have food advertising all the time. We have very close proximity to food for much of our, for many people for much of the day, you're in close proximity to food. So you're experiencing those cues and there's very little of an effort barrier for many of the foods that surround us. So, you know, you don't have to go through some complicated cooking procedure to eat a bag of chips or drink a soda or grab a slice of pizza or whatever it is. And so you have this package of cues that's surrounding us now in today's modern food environment that really triggers those non-conscious brain regions that are designed to take those cues and trigger appropriate uh, motivational states. Um, And unfortunately in today's world, those motivational states for many people are no longer appropriate, even though they would have been to our ancestors. Yeah, it's these hunger-driven or non-hunger-driven kind of processes. And you you often see that with a lot of people, They, they are having food when they're not necessarily hungry. So it makes sense that you talking about this reaction in the brain when somebody does smell certain foods and we're getting that trigger how it all kind of links to drive somebody to over consume these highly palatable foods in terms of um this stefan now what would be whilst we're on this topic what would be some of the kind of um, advice you would give to somebody now they understand this processes what what advice would you give them in terms of how they can now they understand it a little bit more, what tips would you give them to kind of control it a little bit better, at least kind of manage it? Yeah, so there are a number of things that we can do. And I talk about these in greater depth in my book, but two kind of quick things that we can discuss that I think are pretty significantly helpful for most people are one, controlling your food environment 
and two, designing your diet such that it produces more satiety or fullness per calorie consumed. So the first one, as I said, the brain, there are brain regions that are constantly receiving cues from your environment. And if the right cues are detected, that triggers your motivational state, triggers hunger, triggers cravings. Um, And so if we can control our cue exposure, we can gain quite a bit of control over our motivational states not necessarily 100% complete control, but we can gain a fair amount of control. And so it's pretty simple, really. Um, You just want to create a clean food environment, both at home and at work. So what you want to do is minimize your exposure to food cues. So don't, primarily it's about not having tempting foods on the counter where you can see them or you can smell them. Have all your food put away in the cabinet or in the refrigerator. Um, And for problem foods, for things that you find yourself eating and times that you don't really want to, or you're consuming more than you want to, or low, you know, lower quality foods that aren't really consistent with your goals, just don't have them in the house. When they're not in the house, not only are they physically harder to consume, you would have to go buy them if you wanted to consume them but you actually will crave them less because the cue is not readily available. So your brain knows that the ice cream is in the freezer on some level. And if the ice and and it will be more likely to trigger that motivational state. If the ice cream is not in the freezer, your brain is less likely to trigger that motivational state that makes you really really want to have some ice cream. And Again, it's not a perfect solution. You might still want to have some ice cream sometimes, but it is a solution that will significantly shift your motivational states in the direction of your positive, healthy goals for yourself. And so, um, so yeah, having a, a, a good food environment. Um, another aspect to that, there's, there's basically three, three elements to this. One is controlling your cue exposures. That's what I was just talking about. The second one is making sure the food that is in your environment is not too tempting. So have simpler foods available like fresh fruit or unsalted nuts rather than chips and candy and soda and that sort of thing, things that would really stimulate your eating drive. And third, create small effort barriers for yourself. So, you know, one of the things that our ancestors had built into their environments was that they had to work for food. And even small effort barriers like having to crack nuts to get inside or having to peel an orange, even small effort barriers like that can make a difference um, such that you won't, maybe you won't initiate an eating bout, particularly a snacking bout, unless you're really genuinely hungry as opposed to just being bored or whatever. So having those small effort barriers Things that, you know, if you're really hungry, if you really need the energy, it's not really going to get in your way significantly, but it's enough to just stop you if you're just going to be purely casually eating. So, so the three things I just said for controlling your food environment to, just to review are reduce your exposure to cues. And by the way, that includes advertising on television stuff. Um, make sure that the foods in your environment are less tempting 
and create small effort barriers for yourself, whether it's having to crack nuts or peel oranges or unscrew a jar to get at whatever food it is or having to reheat something in the microwave. Make sure that there's small effort barriers in place. So those are the three principles to improving your food environment. Yeah, I think it's creating friction, isn't it? Like you just said before, if, if you could create some form of friction where therefore you feel less likely to do it, I think that's a very powerful tip. Yeah, absolutely. If you look at hunter-gatherers like the Hadza, for example, in Tanzania, who have been really well characterized, and just to be clear, hunter-gatherers are a model of how humans lived for millions of years before agriculture. So basically for most of the time that humans have existed, we were hunter gatherers who were not, we weren't planting crops uh, and harvesting them. We were just living off of wild foods. And so hunter gatherers are an important model of, you know, how we got to where we are today in terms of our physical and cognitive adaptations. And so if you look at hunter gatherers, the Hadza, for example, they eat tons of honey. I mean, they get like 15% of their calories from honey which is kind of like a refined sugar, right? I mean, it's, it's basically pure sugar. I, I, you know, I, I wouldn't recommend today that people eat 15% of their calories from, from honey. That seems a little excessive, right? But yeah. what do they have to do to get that honey? And by the way, they just chug it too. They just like drink it like it's milk. It's pretty, pretty crazy to, uh, to hear these stories from anthropologists, but how do they get that honey? Well, they have to climb up baobab trees. I'll describe the process. First, they start off by making a fire at the base of a baobab tree, which is this big, big African tree with a big fat trunk. Then they cut a bunch of pegs and they pound those pegs into the trunk of the baobab tree because generally there's not low-lying branches. Oh, sorry. The first step is you find the nest. You find the bee's nest. So you have to locate that nest by seeing some stray bee flying in the air and then see where it's going. Or you work with a honey guide bird, which is a bird that um, they can uh, work with to find nests. Yeah. So then once you found the nest, which, you know, could be miles away from your, your camp, then you build a fire at the base of the tree. Then you pound pegs into the tree. Then you climb way up into this tree and you, you bring with you, yourself a, uh, a smoking, a stick with some smoking uh, substance on the end of it, something to make smoke to calm the bees down. You stick that in the hole and then you reach your whole arm into this hole, getting stung in the process by these wild bees. You pull out the honeycomb and then you go back down and you eat it and you give some to the, to the honey guide bird. So, I mean, think about that. That's what they have to do every time they want to eat honey. So in, in the context in which our brains evolved, there were substantial barriers to eating. Like how hungry would you have to be to do what I just described to get food? You'd have to be pretty hungry, right? I mean, you're not going to be like, hmm, I'm sitting around and I'm kind of bored and feel like eating something. I'm going to go get stung by some bees, right? I mean, <laughs> you would have to be pretty darn motivated to do something like that so it's a lot of effort <laughs> yeah no kidding and, and not everything they do requires that level of effort but a lot of it does i mean they're out there hunting um 
large game animals and small game animals walking all day and tracking in the hot sun. I mean, they're often expending substantial amounts of work to get the food that they get or the women who go out with digging sticks and dig up tubers. They'll sit there for like 10 or 15 minutes pounding the ground with the, with basically a big stick to dig out something that looks like a sweet potato. And they'll do this for, you know, hours to get enough sweet potatoes to feed themselves in their, in their camp. So, you know, and, and some things require a less effort. Like you can just pick up baobab fruits off the ground or pick berries or something, but everything requires some effort and many things require a lot of effort. And that is where our brains evolve. So our motivational states that tell us through hunger and cravings that drive us to go get food, those things are calibrated for an environment in which it takes a lot of motivation to get enough food to survive. We still have that strong motivational drive built in that we needed to survive back then. But in the current food environment, it's so easy that it's pushing us um, too hard given how easy it is to get food. And so, so yeah, so having, you know, recreating even in very small, little small amounts, recreating those effort barriers gets us at least a little bit of the way back to what our brains were designed for. That was a, with the hunter-gatherers. I think a lot of people from not understanding this, but you look in and you think, how's somebody having that much honey? I'll be chugging all this honey down and actually gaining so much weight. And you turn around and you've got, look at the energy expenditure that these guys are having to go to to get them calories. And when they do get them calories, they want something very, very calorie dense to actually, like you said before, kind of match their energy needs that, that they actually need to get through the day and that survival. Um, I think a really good point going off this, Stefan, is when we spoke about people searching for these foods and in general, what, what is it about our brain that wants certain foods that, you know, that we feel like a soul reward and they're really, really motivating to us? What, what is it that goes on there that drives us to want these certain foods? Because for me personally, and I'm sure obviously everyone can agree, I'm sure you do as well, like I don't crave to have a bowl of broccoli. I don't crave to have some salad. But however, when it comes to ice cream, cake, cookies, what is it about this food that really attracts our brain? Yeah, that's a key question. And I think the first thing to understand is exactly what you said, that not all foods create the same motivational state in the brain. And we know quite a lot about what properties of food trigger our motivational drive to eat, actually. And essentially, the way it works is that we are hardwired to respond to specific physical and chemical properties of food. And so specifically, there are receptors in the digestive tract the, particularly the upper small intestine, but also in the mouth and other parts of the digestive tract that detect sugar and starch and fat and protein and salt and glutamate, which is that meaty umami flavor that's in soy sauce and MSG and bone broth. And when those chemicals are detected, it sends a signal back up to the brain and we now have a pretty good idea of all the steps it takes to get there and it causes dopamine to be released in the brain. And the more, the higher the concentration of those nutrients I just said, the more dopamine 
release you get in the brain. And I want to point out that all of the nutrients I just mentioned, except for salt, are connected to a food's calorie value. So the brain is really, really focused in terms of its intrinsic, in terms of its instinctive motivational drive, the brain is very, very focused on calorie density of food. More calories equals better as far as the brain's instincts are concerned. And so when, when it detects sugar, starch, fat, protein, um, salt, and glutamate, you get dopamine spiking in the brain proportional to the concentration of those nutrients. And so when you eat something like, imagine you're eating broccoli and there's nothing on it, no salt, no fat, nothing. It's cooked, but there's nothing on it at all. And you're eating it and you're thinking, wow, this is really not very good. I don't think I'm going to eat a lot of this. It tastes really plain. It tastes really bitter. I wish it was slathered in you know, cheese or butter or salt. There's nothing going on in your brain. That's the problem. There's no dopamine release happening. And this is why kids don't really like broccoli. It doesn't contain any of the pro- properties that the brain likes. Um, and you know, some kids like broccoli, but the stereotype is that children don't really like vegetables, especially plain vegetables with nothing on them. It just doesn't, you know, all the vitamins and minerals in kale, for example, the brain doesn't care. Nobody, very few people would enjoy eating plain cooked kale with nothing on it, no salt, no fat. It does not contain the nutrients that are intrinsically motivating to the human brain. Now you put some fat and some salt on it. Some people will enjoy it. Some won't. Um, but most kids probably still won't like it. It's bitter. So, um, so basically you have these properties that stimulate dopamine release in the brain and how do you, so how do you maximize that dopamine release? Well, there's basically two ways. One way is you increase the concentration of those nutrients. So you have more fat, more sugar, more salt, et cetera, et cetera. And the other way is you combine those nutrients together. So you're not just eating a food that's high in carbohydrate, you're eating a food that's high in carbohydrate and fat. So imagine for a moment that you're eating ice cream. So, you know, most people really like ice cream. I really like ice cream. You're eating it and it's creamy and it's sweet and it's delicious and it's cold. Now imagine that you're eating fat-free ice cream, completely fat-free. It's really not as good. I mean, probably most of you have had fat-free ice cream, right? It's really not very good. In fact, I would say for, for myself, this is my opinion, I don't even think I would ever buy it. I don't think I would be motivated to eat it. If somebody put it in front of me, maybe I would have some, but I'm not really going to go out of my way to get fat-free ice cream. Now imagine ice cream that doesn't have any sugar, no sugar or sweetness of any kind. It's just fatty. It would probably taste pretty good, but again, it's not really something that most people are going to go out of their way to eat. They're probably not going to purchase it at the store. They're not, you know, unless somebody puts it in front of them as like a curiosity, they're probably not going to eat a whole lot of it. Um, So it's really that combination of sugar and fat together that really gets the dopamine spiking. And this relates to a property called the bliss point which is the optimal concentration of a food, of of a nutrient, sorry, for pleasure. 
So if you imagine salt is a great example. So let's say you have a, a beautiful steak in front of you. It has nothing on it at all. No salt, nothing. It's going to taste pretty good, but it will taste better with a little salt on it, right? You sprinkle a little salt on it, it tastes better. Then you put a little more and it tastes better, a little more and it tastes better and better and better and better and better the more you add up to a certain point. You reach that maximum and that's called the bliss point. And then if you keep adding more salt after that, it actually doesn't taste as good. And then eventually gets to the point where it's totally inedible because it's just covered in a pile of salt and it's disgusting. So for all of these nutrients that cause dopamine release, there's an optimal concentration that is not 0% and not 100%. So people don't really take shots of vegetable oil. That's not very tasty. They don't eat spoonfuls of plain sugar. Uh, that's not very tasty either. But if you mix those things together such that you're hitting multiple bliss points with the same food, that is where it's at as far as dopamine is concerned. And so we're really good at that in the modern world. We're really good. We've optimized these things through hundreds and even thousands of years of figuring out what the human brain and the human palate enjoys. And now we can create foods that stimulate way more dopamine release that probably, I should say, stimulate way more dopamine release than the foods that our ancestors lived on. I mean, compare brownies and pizza to, you know, eating baobab fruit or a plain, you know, roasted leg of kudu, which is a, a game animal that the Hadza eat. Uh, baobab fruit is pretty fibrous and not that sweet kind of tart. Um, and plain meat, you know, we're not talking about marbled Angus beef here. We're talking about lean, tough, wild meat with nothing on it, no salt or anything. So that's the comparison that we're talking about. The, 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 the baobab and the meat and the wild meat, that's what our brains evolved on. The brownies and the pizza are the things that are available today. They're just better at stimulating dopamine, better at triggering stronger motivational states, creating eating drive and excess hunger. And so if you look at studies that measure um, their surveys, they basically just ask people, which types of foods do you crave the most? Which types of foods trigger addiction-like eating behavior? In other words, loss of control over eating and other related phenomena like that. You find that almost invariably, the types of foods that trigger that the most often are combinations of fat and carbohydrate, like uh, cookies and brownies and that sort of thing, either sweet ones like, yeah, cookies and brownies, or savory ones like chips and... Uh, and corn chips um, and also even things that don't have that much carbohydrate like and that are more fatty and salty like bacon um, but you don't see very many of the just simple natural foods you don't see a lot of uh, fresh fruit you don't see whole grains you don't see fre you know fresh meat these are, these are things that are the types of foods that sustained our ancestors and that are better for us. But these aren't really what the brain wants the most because they don't stimulate as much dopamine. They're not as calorie dense. They don't combine as many rewarding ingredients. 
they don't have high enough concentrations of those dopamine stimulating nutrients. And so this, I think this explains a lot of why the modern diet is what it is. If you look at the types of foods that people consume in the US, the UK and other affluent nations, we have gravitated toward these so-called ultra processed foods that are engineered by culture and by corporations to be very, very dopamine stimulating and calorie dense. And those are the foods that dominate our diets. And those are precisely the foods that make us fat and make us sick. Yeah, a combination of all those things and like you said, engineering it to play into these kind of emotions people have and these like intrinsic motivators to eat food. And we obviously the environment is now playing playing firmly into that, which is obviously causing an obese epidemic all over the world. Um, just touching on what you just mentioned there, Stefan, in terms of this need that our brain has for these foods that do contain, like you said, sugar, salt, starchy carbohydrates, all those things. When it comes to kind of diet for a lot of people, what's your thoughts on people that when it turns obviously coming back down to like energy balance and calories being kind of the, obviously the main in fact to her in terms of um, losing weight for a lot of people what's your thought process on this if it meets your macros type of thing which still includes these very hyper palatable foods that contain salt sugar sweet that it can ultimately yes you can lose weight eating these foods we know that however what does that do does that obviously it's not going to help what's going on in the brain to lead to kind of long-term adherence. And what's your thought process on people that kind of, it's like one way or the other with current diet, isn't it? It's like either eat this way, you know, lean, healthy protein, clean eating and such. And then you have the other end of the spectrum where people are saying you can actually eat whatever food you want, as long as it's kind of you're in a negative energy balance. What's your thoughts on that in terms of when it comes down to the brain and how that can kind of interfere with what goes on? Yeah. So first of all, in general, I have a kind of whatever works for you type of philosophy. So, you know, I'm certainly not going to criticize folks for continuing to do something that they're having success with. Um, that said, I think that continuing to eat those very dopamine stimulating foods, I think is a more challenging path for most people than reducing or eliminating those types of foods. Um, and let me just be clear that I'm not really a drill sergeant with myself in this respect. So probably 90 plus percent of the foods that I eat are simple, unrefined foods, but I still have ice cream every now and then. I went out to get pizza a couple of weeks ago. So it's not like I never eat these foods. I just don't make it a regular part of my diet. Um, and that's what works for me. Some people have to be more strict than that, um, but that works fine for me. So anyway, I, first thing is I just want to acknowledge that there are people who can eat, you know, quote unquote, less healthy foods and eat them in a lower number of calories and they can maintain their body composition and their health. And that's fine. I'm not criticizing that approach. Um, but I think for most people that is going to be a lot more challenging than focusing on diet quality in terms of the long game. So, you know, humans, the way the human brain is designed to regulate food intake 
is not to consciously track calories and consciously track expenditure and try to balance it in an Excel spreadsheet, right? That's not what our ancestors did. The way that humans naturally interact with food is we eat when we feel like eating and we stop when we feel full, right? And so I think working with the systems that decide when we feel like eating and when we feel full and having those systems generate the appropriate outputs naturally because of the food cues and the environment cues that we're giving them. I think that is for most people going to be a more sustainable um, and effective route toward weight loss. And we see this in this, in the scientific studies, you see that, if you just tell people to do portion control, if you say, Hey, you know, let's, why don't you reduce your calorie intake by three or 400 calories a day? Here's an eating plan to help you do that. People just aren't very good at that. They don't really sustain it very effectively. Whereas if you focus on food quality and, or, you know, some kind of macronutrient restriction, for example, the diet fits study was a great example of this. They had people, eating a low carbohydrate diet or a low fat diet. And both of those were high quality diets focusing on unrefined food and getting rid of junk foods, et cetera. And people saw pretty good weight loss. They saw uh, off the top of my head, I think they lost about 15 pounds over a year, um, which is better than most diet studies. And, and similar between low carb and low fat, they lost a similar amount of weight. So I think that um, so mm, losing my train of thought here. Yeah. It's just, I, it does come down to the individual as well, doesn't it? Like you say, if someone has got a history of kind of tendencies to overeat, overeat these highly palatable foods on a consistent basis for many, many years, then the approach of kind of, okay, we can still fit this food into your diet for you to lose weight. Can obviously I get it because I'm not a robot myself and I'm definitely not a robot with my clients, but sometimes that could potentially be problematic from what you were saying about what goes on with the brain. Yeah, 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 yeah. So yeah, essentially. So anyway, the, the point I was trying to make, these people in this diet fit study, they were not actively trying to control their calorie intake. They were changing only diet quality. That was the only thing they were changing, both in terms of trying to eat whole foods and restricting a macronutrient. So they were not saying, hey, I'm trying to consciously limit calories. I'm trying to do portion control. They were just changing the types of foods they were eating and calorie control followed naturally from that based on their own appetite and satiety, et cetera. So that's what I'm talking about in terms of, yes, it does come down to calories that is the mechanism, but that doesn't mean that the best way to achieve that is to consciously focus on calorie control. There, in my opinion, are other ways that are that will be more likely to be successful for the average person. That said, you know, if you have a figure competitor or someone who a bodybuilder, someone who's highly motivated, they you can definitely just count calories. I mean, that does work. It's not if, if you can do it correctly and sustain it, it is effective. So, um, but I think for most people, for the average person who's just trying to eat a healthier diet and lose some weight, 
I don't think that that is going to be the best place to start um, for them in terms of effectiveness and sustainability. Um, but yeah, and, and there's the issue that some people just are going to lose control with some of these foods. So if you are exposing yourself regularly to foods that stimulate a high level of dopamine, it's just the same way that some people have addictive personalities and some don't. Some people can do that and they're fine. Some people can smoke cigarettes every now and then. Some people can even shoot up heroin a couple times and not get addicted. But other people, they do that same thing and they're going to spiral out of control. And so I think uh, it really depends on the individual and how that dopamine is affecting you, how strongly it's affecting you. Yeah. But another thing I will say is that in terms of body composition, calories are king. So whether you're directly manipulating calories or you're doing it indirectly through the foods that you choose, it, as far as we know, it is all about the calories. So that is the mechanism. And furthermore, in terms of the health effects of food, calories are very important there too. So if you look at, for example, I don't know if you've ever heard of uh, Mark Haub. He's, a, he's the head of nutrition at Kansas State uh, University, I believe. He did this experiment where he ate almost nothing but junk food for uh, a couple months, I believe, but he reduced his calorie intake. So he was eating, I don't know if you, you guys have ca uh, Twinkies over there, but that's like one of the classic like worst junk food candy things that you can it's like a really like low quality pastry um oh, i know what you mean yeah we, we we have loads of rubbish like that but yeah i know um twinkies are quite big in the u.s aren't they okay yeah so he called it the, the twinkie diet and um he was just eating base almost 100 percent junk food plus a you know a can of green beans and a multivitamin each day but the key is he was reducing his calorie intake. And over the course of a couple months, he lost over 20 pounds. His blood glucose levels improved. All of his blood cholesterol markers improved. And he lost weight. Basically, and his blood pressure improved. So basically, if you went into your cardiologist's office or your endocrinologist with numbers like that, they would be giving you high fives. They'd be like, what is this magical diet you're on? <laughs> and it turns out it's a junk food diet that's low in calories. So the, the calorie intake and body fatness have a huge impact on your metabolic and cardiovascular health. I would say it's probably the number one thing. That said, it's not the only thing. There are other qualitative aspects of food that impact your cardiovascular and metabolic health. So I think that if you're just focusing on calories and eating junk food, you're probably not going to be getting everything you could be getting from food in terms of the health benefits. Yeah, for sure. There does seem to be a big argument in the industry about that, doesn't there? There seems to be people are just talking about obviously calories and then you've got other end of the spectrum talking about, like you said, the, the health side of things, but in terms of it's kind of meeting in the middle, obviously calories is the king and that is in itself, as you just said, with that study, improves so many health markers, but also at the same time, it's about looking into things like you're looking into with your neuroscience of overeating and how we can, it's probably not necessarily the best bet to have these so-called trigger foods within our diet too much, because that can then just lead to potential overeating for many, many more years. It doesn't really solve the problem as such, does it? 
Yeah, that's right. And I don't think the question is really how can we lose weight? Because I mean, there are many different ways to lose weight. The question is how can we lose weight most easily and most sustainably? That's really what we're looking for. What's the strategy that we're going to be able to do effectively day in and day out for years or possibly the rest of our lives? And I think that for most people sitting in front of a a box of pizza and only having a slice and a half is not going to be the most sustainable, <laughs> the most sustainable route. No chance, not a chance. With um, might be going just a little bit off topic here, Stefan, but this is something that I would really love to just delve into. Is you've spoke about the difference in brain chemistry between a lean individual and an obese individual, and I think that'd be really great to just touch upon and. Also, we can kind of then filter into when somebody does lose weight, how the regulation of body fatness wants to potentially, well, the brain, should we say, want to pull them back to their original body weight and just make things a lot harder for them to maintain their weight loss. Yeah. So one of the things I focus on in my book and the subject of my research when I was at the University of Washington is this system in the brain that regulates body fatness. So a lot of people don't know that there is a system in the brain that regulates the amount of fat on your body. And it's one of many systems in the brain that regulate different things internally in the body. So for example, you know, most people know that our body temperature is very constant. And that the reason for that is because it's regulated by the brain. So the brain uses both physiology and behaviors like putting on a sweater or messing with the thermostat, uh, brown fat activation or shivering. Those are all different strategies that the brain uses to maintain your temperature in a, your core temperature, I should say, within a very narrow range. And so we have all these regulatory processes in the body that are trying to maintain stability of different things. And one of the things that's regulated, which is regulated actually right next to body temperature, is body fatness. It's in a part of the brain called the hypothalamus that specializes in this type of regulation. And so the way this works is that your fat tissue secretes a hormone called leptin in proportion to the size of your fat stores. So the more fat you have, the more leptin you secrete, and that is in your blood in proportion to the amount of fat. And so your brain listens to that leptin signal and uses it as um, a measure of how much fat you're carrying. So your brain knows how much fat you're carrying based on the amount of leptin that's in your blood. And different people, and, and um, okay, let me take a step back. So, and then the brain basically compares that level of leptin to the amount that it quote unquote wants. So just like your thermostat has a set temperature that it will bring your house back to when it deviates from, your brain has a body fat set point that it will bring you back to when you deviate from it in either direction, up or down, but particularly when you deviate in the downward direction. In other words, when you start to lose fat. So when you start to lose fat, your leptin declines, your brain detects that decline and it starts to kick in um, responses to bring the fat back. So just like your thermostat would detect a decline in temperature and would kick on the heat, 
your brain detects a decline in body fat and it kicks on your hunger, kicks on your cravings. It causes you to pay more attention to food cues. It uh, reduces your metabolic rate so that you're expending less energy. So you're expending less and you're, and it's pushing you to eat more to basically bring you back to the fat level that you had before. And that continues until you've regained the fat and then things go back to normal. And so this is why, this is a key reason, possibly the number one reason why it's so hard for people to lose fat. If we didn't have a system that fought against weight loss and brought you back to your former weight or attempted to bring you back to your former weight, if that system didn't exist, we probably wouldn't have very much obesity at all. It probably wouldn't be hard because if you were able to successfully lose weight, you could just stay at the lower weight indefinitely. You wouldn't just bounce right back up like most people do. So, and this is something you see after, in study after study after study. Doesn't matter what diet approach you're talking about, whether it's portion control, low-fat diets, uh, low-carb diets, vegan diets. Basically, most people in these studies achieve maximum weight loss around six months, and then on average, they start bouncing back. And by a year, they've regained some of the weight. By two years, they've regained most of it. Uh, and then a few years from there, generally, they're, they're not much different than, than where they started. So that's, that's kind of the typical response that you see in these types of studies. Um, yeah, so I want to specify, though, and, and by the way, different people and this should be obvious, different people defend different set points. So some people are naturally lean. That's where their brain wants them to be. And it's actually hard for them to gain fat. Some people are, they have obesity and that's where their brain wants them to be. And it's very difficult for them to lose fat. And so we have, we're, we're all at different set points in the population, but it makes it kind of difficult to depart from your current level of body fatness. Not to say that you can't do it, it's just something that you're going to encounter resistance on. And I think, and that's the reason why weight loss, that's a key reason why weight loss is challenging and, and often temporary. The one thing I wanna specify that I think is very important is that this body fat set point that your brain is defending is not uh, unchangeable for all time. It's not like this thing that you're just born with and you have to deal with for life. It actually, the brain is more sophisticated than that. It actually reacts to prevailing conditions in your diet and in your lifestyle. So um, depending on the type of diet that you're eating and the type of lifestyle that you're living, the brain can defend different body fat set points and make it comfortable for you to be at different levels of, of fatness. And of course, in most people, the defended level of body fat creeps up as we age. So most people grow fatter over time in affluent cultures and um, their brains will actually actively defend a higher and higher level of body fatness over time. So it's not this immobile thing that can never change. It can be modified. However, on short time scales, it, it will push back against changes in weight. 
Yeah, is it, it's kind of the same. It's kind of talking about the metabolic adaptation occur when you actually are dieting to lose body fat. Obviously, I spoke about this before, like the body wants to, going back to what you spoke about before, really, from the, um, the hunter-gatherers, the preserving energy, when you are kind of eating sufficient less calories than you used to, naturally your body's going to want to defend that where you won't feel the need to want to take the stairs instead of getting in the lift and things like that. Is that, is that correct in terms of what you're saying with regards to the leptin in terms of this resistance to kind of continue losing weight again and this pushback to regain? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so that's part of it. So if we look at the regulation of temperature by the body, what we can see is that the brain, in order to maintain your core temperature, it engages both physiology, in other words, things happening inside your body, and behaviors, things that are happening outside of your body. So if you're feeling cold, your brain might engage some physiological responses, like it will constrict blood vessels on your skin, it will um, cause your brown fat to start generating energy, it will cause you to shiver, which are these quick muscular contractions that generate heat. And it'll also engage behaviors. So you'll want to put on a sweater. You'll want to adopt heat conserving postures. You'll want to turn up the thermostat or have a hot cup of tea, et cetera. And so what, that's, that's kind of how these types of regulation works work. And that's how it works with body fat too. So when you lose fat and your, um, your brain is fighting against that loss, it's going to engage both physiological responses inside the body and behavioral responses outside the body. So the behavioral res responses mostly relate to getting more calories into your body. So, you know, having the cravings and the, and the hunger, um, but also possibly reduce physical activity. I'm not, I'm not sure about that one. Um, but the physiology of it includes reducing your metabolic rate. And so if you look at the studies that have been done on this, uh, generally they find that you see a disproportionate reduction in metabolic rate. So in other words, if you lose weight, you would expect that your total metabolic rate would decline because you have less tissue mass, right? You lose weight, you have less tissue, less energy demand to maintain that tissue. So your, your, your metabolic rate is going to decline regardless of any adaptation. But on top of that, there is an additional decline that is the brain kind of fighting back. And it ranges in magnitude, but something like 150 calories is in the ballpark of what studies often see. So that's on top of the reduction that's happening because your body is smaller. You also have the brain saying, whoa, let's put the brakes on this. Um, and where is that coming from? Well, some of it comes out of basal metabolic rate, which is um, just housekeeping happening in your body. A little bit comes out of basal metabolic rate. Most of it does not come out of basal metabolic rate um, and may come out of actual efficiency with which you contract your muscles. So a good chunk of the energy expenditure that we have each day is just us moving our bodies around and apparently the body can do that more or less efficiently. In other words, perform the same contraction while expending less energy. And there's at least some research suggesting that some of the energy savings that the brain is 
creating is coming from greater muscular efficiency. So basically the, the big picture is that you're burning less energy partly just because your body's smaller and partly because the brain is initiating this, this efficiency program, you're getting more energy in and together those things are working to restore your lost fat. Yeah. Bring you back to that kind of homeostasis. I'll bring you back to where it's used to been for many, many years. Yeah. I just want to just, just lastly, before we wrap this one up, Stefan, in regards of that, in terms of different people, so say if you have a really lean individual, like naturally say they've been lean all their life and things like that, does it work in the other end of the spectrum? Or when somebody kind of is obese or they, they go to a really leaner physique for many, many years, can, is, it, is that pushback then kind of not as strong the longer somebody has been in a certain position? So the evidence on this is pretty limited, but it suggests that time is not a factor. So if you have a person who has obesity and they lose weight, they lose a substantial amount of weight and maintain that for a couple of years, they still show signs of their brain and body fighting against that weight loss even after a couple of years. So time does not seem to be a factor as far as the limited evidence that we currently have that could change, but that's what we have right now. Um, and however, although time is not a factor, other things are like diet quality and lifestyle. Yeah, for sure. Just before this one, Stefan, it'd be really interesting to ask you, cause I know a lot of your research obviously is within obesity. Obviously it has been going in the wrong direction. If we just kind of, you to select one thing what do you think is one of the things that we need to change the most in current society to bring down these obesity levels and make this positive change that people are after as well as obviously the information that you're doing with your book and your research giving people the education ultimately what do you think that we do environmentally or whatever it may be need to put in place to ultimately help us reduce this epidemic yeah, I think this is really challenging because the problem with obesity in modern society is human nature itself. So if we're going to try to fight the obesity epidemic, we are going to be fighting human nature itself. And that's a difficult thing to do. Um, I think the primary thing we need to do is change our food environment in such a way that it naturally favors consuming healthier foods in smaller amounts. And um, that is a tough thing to do because most people don't want anybody messing with their food, <laughs> especially in the United States, but I think probably everywhere in the world to some degree, people really resent the government uh, having a say in, in what they eat, even in really small, minimal ways. Um, that said, I think if we got serious about this, and maybe if public opinion changed or if the government decided it was going to step up, I think we could make uh, substantial inroads into the obesity epidemic in the same way that we have against cigarette smoking. So if you look, I, I know it best in the United States, but if, if you look at cigarette smoking, 
it's declined per capita cigarette consumption has declined by about three quarters in the United States since the 1970s. So there's been a huge reduction in cigarette smoking, especially in the younger generations. And it's been a huge public health win in terms of reducing cardiovascular disease, emphysema, lung cancer, and a variety of other horrible complications of long-term cigarette smoking. So how did this happen? Well, you had these massive tobacco settlements back in the 1980s, I believe. Billions and billions of dollars were paid out by tobacco companies to organizations that were focused on tobacco control, basically as a result of settlements because these companies were hiding the truth about, about cigarettes. And so you had these uh, massively funding, funded campaigns that were working to create an environment that was basically hostile to smoking. So how do you do that? Well, the first thing you do is you start taxing cigarettes. Now, you know, when I was a kid, uh, it cost about a dollar for a pack of 20 cigarettes growing up in Virginia. There's been some inflation since then, but right now it's, I think, about $15 a pack in, uh, in the Seattle area, maybe some 12 to $15 in that range. So, I mean, the cost has, even accounting for inflation, the cost has increased massively. Um, and that, you know, it's simple economics, supply and demand. Um, well, sorry, that's not supply and demand, but it's simple economics that as the price goes up, um, fewer people will purchase. And that is exactly what has happened. But there's also been the cultivation of social stigma through things like counter-marketing, which are advertisements that are designed to reduce consumption of something rather than increase it. We've had these anti-smoking advertisements in the United States for quite a while now that basically try to paint smoking as undesirable and unhealthy and gross. And we have warning labels on cigarettes. We've created... Uh, an environment where you can't smoke in most public places, you can't smoke in restaurants, you can't smoke in bars. And basically there's a culture now of basically it's, it's gross to smoke cigarettes. So, you know, no one would think of smoking a cigarette in a restaurant who would smoke a cigarette in a restaurant. That's disgusting. When I was a kid, all restaurants had smoking. So, you know, that things have changed quite a bit. And I think that there's a playbook there that if we really wanted to, we could apply to food. Now, food is more complicated because you don't need cigarettes to live. You do need food to live. So it's, you have to slice it more finely with food because it's not about should we eat food or not. It's about which foods should we eat and which foods should we not eat and how much. But that said, I mean, if we taxed foods that are obviously unhealthy, and I'm talking about real taxes. I'm not talking about 10% tax like a lot of municipalities are doing in the United States. I'm talking about multiplying the cost of those foods by two or three fold like we did with cigarettes. If you did that to you know, sugar-sweetened beverages, candy, candy bars, you know, people are going to hate me for this, bacon, <laughs> and you know, other unhealthy foods like that, yeah. I think it would have a huge impact. 
Now, nobody really, not very many people want that. People would like revolt and riot probably if the government tried to do that. But the fact remains, it would probably be effective. Um, yeah, and so things like that, you know, making, making it more costly, more inconvenient, less culturally acceptable to consume things that are unhealthy and to overconsume, I think that is a path forward for us. Um, I think it's a path forward that's unlikely to happen because it's unpopular. But I think there are other things that we can do around the margins that maybe are not unpopular, like restrict food advertising. I mean, in the United States, the average adult sees 20 food ads per day. Do we really need to be seeing 20 food ads per day? Do adolescents need to be seeing 16 food ads a day, mostly for unhealthy food, that's going to drive them toward obesity and illness and early death. Is that something we want as a society? I don't think so. Certainly advertising to children. Um, so I don't know. I think there are things we can do around the margins that could be helpful, but I think if we want the big wins, we're going to have to get a heck of a lot more serious than we are right now. No, that's some really good points. And yeah, really, really drastic. Cause now it seems to be the other way around, especially in the UK, this, uh, these foods that we're talking about are really, really cheap <laughs> and it's the healthier foods that are more expensive. So there does need to be a switch from, from what you're just saying. Yeah. And, you know, just to emphasize how much of a challenge this is in the United States, the increase in body fatness that we've seen over the last 50 years corresponds with an, in, an average daily increase of 218 calories per day per person. And that's average. Some people are lean. So about a third of Americans are lean and they're not over consuming calories. What that means is that the other third of the population that have obesity are consuming, you know, five to 600 excess calories a day. And that those are the people you would need to target the most. And so think about that. I mean, to have government regulation or any kind of regulation or any kind of anti-obesity strategy at all that causes people to reduce their calorie intake by 20% by five or 600 calories a day. I mean, can you imagine how challenging that is? But that is essentially what we would have to do to reverse the obesity epidemic. Oh, that's absolutely mental. Stefan, thank you so much for coming on to the show. We've obviously, we've chatted for quite a long time now and we've covered so many important things. That I'm sure a lot of my listeners will get a lot of value from just before we go, do you want to just give yourself a little bit of a shout out in terms of where people can find you and find your stuff? Obviously, we've mentioned your book, but what other avenues can people go to see more of your work? Yeah, so my website is stephanguiana.com. I haven't been writing many posts there lately. Uh, mostly I'm active on Twitter these days. My handle is at source. But I would especially encourage people to check out Red Pen Reviews. Uh, like I said in the beginning, that's my latest project, um, creating expert health and nutrition book reviews that really help people get to the meat of the information quality of popular health and nutrition books. I would say visit that, check it out, see what we have so far. And if you like it, consider donating because um, that's what's really going to help our organization survive and thrive. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Stefan. And hopefully we'll speak again soon. Okay. Thanks, David. 
Thank you for listening to the Fat Fix podcast, and I hope you all enjoyed today's show. If you have not already, please make sure you subscribe and you don't miss out on any future episodes. I also can't stress enough how much it means to me, to those that have left me a star rating and written review on iTunes. This will ultimately help me reach more people like you and really help them too. So please give me two minutes of your time to do this if you haven't already. Lastly, any shares and mentions on social media is also massively appreciated. I will see you very soon for the next episode. Thank you very much.